those of you who have been worshiping with us Sunday by Sunday know that just before Christmas, uh, before Christmas, we had begun a study of the gospel according to Luke. Luke claims to have gone and interviewed eyewitnesses to write down for a friend of his, one whom he calls Theophilus, and for whom he uses a personal term, he calls him most excellent Theophilus, like we would say the most excellent ambassador from so-and-so. And so Luke puts together an account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, of those things that are most assuredly believed amongst believers. He also has a sequel to that account called the Acts of the Apostles. Those of us who have been studying in prayer meetings on Wednesday afternoons and on Wednesday evenings have been going through the Acts of the Apostles. What we are learning as we read is that Jesus is alive that he is real, that he works great power, and we are seeing something of his work. Now today, we, we, you will remember last Sunday, we looked at his entry into the city of Jerusalem. I almost call the sermon today salvation by surprise, because no one could have been more surprised than the apostles of Jesus himself, even though he had told them that he would rise from the dead, they simply did not believe things would work out the way he was saying that they were going to work. The reason is that they already had their own ideas about what the Messiah should be. He sought again and again to change their mind from thinking the way in which they were thinking. He wanted them to know that he would not come in great pomp and glory like Herod into Jerusalem that he would not come with great military power like Pilate into Jerusalem, but that he comes meek and lowly. He comes like a king. They put their palm branches in front of them, remembering their great patriot Judas Maccabeus, whose symbol was a palm branch, and knowing that Jesus will cleanse the temple, that Judas had cleansed the temple, and when Jesus cleanses the temple, they must think that surely he's going to overthrow Rome. But then all week long, his sermons during Holy Week completely baffle them because he's not doing things the way they want them done. The Lord does not do things the way we want him to do them. And thank God he doesn't. He does it much better. He brings us salvation by surprise. And so today we read the account of two who when they had gone from Emmaus up to Jerusalem must have been full of great joy because they thought they were going up there to see Jesus who had worked all of these mighty miracles, crowned a great king and leading the people against Rome and against the corruption that existed in the church of his day. But things didn't come to pass that way. And their hopes were all caved in. And now they walk back home some seven miles. So if you have your Bible, turn in your New Testament to Luke chapter 24. And at verse 13, I'll read from the New International Version, one of the most beautiful of all of the narratives of what happened when the living Christ came back and walked amongst his own. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. 
And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleophas, answered him, Are you the only one living in Jerusalem who does not know what things have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart, that you do not believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this important reading from his word. This is an old copy of Time magazine. And I suppose that if you're in the bifocal stage as I am, you won't be able to see very much of it from here. But on the cover of this magazine is the Colossus of Theology for the 20th Century, a man by the name of Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian. In back of him, there is an empty tomb. There is a rock rolled back from that tomb, and down on the ground is a crown of thorns. And Karl Barth says some important words. He says these words, 
Do you want to believe in the living Christ? We may believe in him only if we believe in his corporal resurrection. That's the resurrection of the body. This is the content of the New Testament. We are always free to reject it, but not to modify it, nor to pretend that the New Testament tells us something else. We may accept it, or we may refuse it, but we may not change the message. I think that one reason this appears on the cover of Time magazine is that another man that I once met, who happened to be the editor of this magazine, whose name was Henry Luce, a Presbyterian, had a great interest in theology and a great interest in the New Testament. And an unusual thing happened when Henry Luce died. Newsweek magazine, the great competitor of Time magazine, ran a picture of Henry Luce on the cover. And this was not long after the God is dead controversy had sort of sprung up, and now the God is dead people are dying, so it doesn't matter. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and Henry Luce uh, had entered into a correspondence with some of his friends, and I love the editorial that was written. I don't know who wrote it from Newsweek. It's better than, it was better then than it is now. But it, it was really good. Uh, this is what the editorial writer said. It tells us that at the, ver that very, clo at the very close of Mr. Luce's life, he was much interested in all the debates in theology. Indeed, indeed, it was a part of this interest that led him to enter into the discussion from the people who were talking about God is dead. Now, this is what Luce said. The real question about God is, of course, whose God is dead or what God is dead. Now, that's what Luce himself said. After all, the argumentation is done. I believe that the God revealed in Scripture is quite simply God. And therefore, not only living, but the creator and the source of all life. And then the editor went on to say, the editor of Newsweek, last week, the questioning, probing, prodding soul of Henry Luce went off to get his final answer. He did go off to get his final answer. And not only am I touched by the fact that a gigantic man like Karl Barth and a brilliant communicator like Henry Luce but small people, too, have been touched by the power of the risen Christ in a way that causes their lives to be transformed and changed. So that in the midst of the difficulties that hit us in life, we can face up to its hardest situations. Many of the people who have been here in Montreat for a long time have heard me refer to the person who perhaps influenced my life more than any other individual Regarding my faith in Jesus Christ, she was a school teacher. My wife and I were married in the front of a little Methodist church 30 years ago. There were exactly seven people present, including us. <laughs> and uh, uh, her mother and my mother, the minister and his wife, and my wife and I, and one other individual. And the other individual was this remarkable Christian lady who had taught English literature for 50 years and who was a believer in Jesus Christ, the likes of which you seldom see in a whole lifetime. Karl Barth knew a lot of theology. Mother Moss knew a lot about Jesus personally. Henry Luce was a famous communicator. 
Mother Moss was a sweet, simple Christian lady, but with a remarkably gifted mind, too. She wrote her master's thesis 300 pages in Latin. I used to come through the house and pick up a book, and it would be written in German, and she could read as fast as she, she complained about turning the pages. Uh, <laughs> when her hands began to get a little arthritic, she could, she could read faster than she could turn the pages. And she was a brilliant lady. She came from my hometown in East Texas, in Paris, Texas. Her brother had been the commander-in-chief of the United States Navy, the first five-star admiral. Her other brother had been the one who built the Richardson Highway across Alaska, and she chose to be a schoolteacher. Now, the reason that I've referred to her this morning is that I believe that uh, the letter which she had put in her lockbox and directed to be sent to me at her death is well worth reading on Easter Day, a part of it, in connection with these two men and one other that I'll refer to in a few moments. She said, since I was a small girl, my fitness for promotion has mainly been determined by examination or tests of one kind or another, or by the submission of a term paper or notebook. The biggest promotion of my life is the one you're now contemplating, and the term theme is the one you're now hearing. I was born in Paris, Texas, March the 18th, 1874, and have sedulously and jubilantly kept my birthdays. I was converted September the 3rd, 1890, and have with equal enthusiasm kept this, to me, more important birthday. I would much rather never have had the first than to have missed the other birth. You know today the date which I did not know at the time I wrote this letter. The greatest of all my days, that of my coronation, toward which all the others were pointing. Ever since I was 16, some of you are 16, ever since I was 16 and met Jesus Christ, she was converted in a meeting that was considered a great flop. I wish I could hold some that would be that big a flop. <laughs> I have walked with him in a daily conversation and delight. He put a new song into my mouth and a new joy in my heart. He sent me work to do for him and rewarded me for my work, but I realized always that the best was ahead. I have walked a shining path but knew all the time that the best would come at the last. All my lifelong study of literature has taught me that when a writer is really great, the end's the best part of the book. I'm a volume written by a divine writer, and the end is the best part of his book. When I was 11, I intended to write great books. She could read when she was five. But I, as I matured and selected teaching as my life work, it grew more and more engrossing and satisfying, and I became entirely content to write on the fleshly tablets of, my, uh, of, the, hearts of, my, of the heart and to let my students do the writing on paper. Now listen to this next sentence. My meat and drink has been to get God's point of view and to act from it. My daily delight has been to carry out his will. My threefold prayer, to be the spokesman of Jesus when he needed me, to teach with such faithfulness that strong men and women should stand on my teaching in battle for the right, sure of God, and to be so good that my presence should speak for God when my lips might timidly falter. Stepping stones, uh, I won't go on, the stepping stones that helped her across her life were her earthly father and mother's 
Christian example and training. The Sunday school she mentions. And then she says a decision when I was 10 years old to give a tenth of all that I made to God, a sound and permanent, permanent conversion, the Epworth League, that's the young people of the Methodist Church, an annual reading of the Bible for over 60 years. When I lived in her home, she knew over a thousand Bible verses from memory. A constant attendance on the church, unceasing prayer, and my beloved work, and a deep and ardent love of reading. She says this interesting thing for those of you who are in English literature. I almost defy anyone to read reverently two or three times a year the English writers represented in a survey course of English literature and not see the hand of God in its fashion. To read Browning with learners once a year has been the dessert of my literary feast. Another source of my happiness in life has been my friends, strong women, children, and men, whose lives have been dedicated to God and whose walk has been consecrated. Then she says, I've heard about cold and formal churches, but I never lived in one where I could not hear clearly the voice of God. And thus, glad do I live and gladly do I die. I has not seen or ear heard, neither hath it entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. A good man climbs the ladder day by day until as he stands on the top rung, the door opens and he climbs into heaven. We build a ladder by which we rise. We fall to rise again. We are baffled to fight better. We sleep but to wake. Then this closing line, rejoice with me, O my friends, and be glad. For I have today been crowned with the sight of Jesus. I am seeing him as he is together with loved ones gone before, and I'm waiting for you and that great reunion in the city that needs not the light of the sun. Now that's what comes from a life that's dedicated to understanding the scriptures and obeying them and letting the Lordship of Christ rule over your life. A solid conversion to the living Christ and going through a lifetime of work and when I came to live at her house, she was almost 80. And seeing the power of Christ and the happiness in her life made this great influence on me. And so I come back to this, to what happened when Christ rose from the dead. I have said that the salvation was a salvation by surprise. He did not do things the way they wanted them done. He did them a whole lot better. And Cleopas and his companion, when they were walking down that road, had their hopes all shattered. They thought the whole world had caved in, and you'll find situations just like that in your life. But if you look for the sovereignty of God in ruling over your life, you'll see that he'll work things out. He'll work them out. She used to pound into my heart. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purposes. And he'll work them out. You trust him. If he could work out what happened at the cross, he can work out what will happen in your life too. And so these disciples, as they walked along and were so sad, I wonder what they talked about. They must have been talking so loudly that people out in the fields must have thought it was a couple of drunks coming home from the feast in Jerusalem. They were saying, do you remember the first time you ever heard him? I remember him, he was on a hillside 
He was talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there were 5,000 people there at least, and you could hear him clear out to the end of the crowd. And the other would say, oh, I remember one time when I saw a leper who was ringing a bell and screaming frantically, unclean, unclean. And do you know what he did? He went straight forward and touched that horrible, loathsome leper, leper, and he became clean again. He said, you remember the time they tore up the roof and they let that man down in the house in Capernaum? And then they said, we just knew that he was the one who would redeem Israel. But it's all a dream. And the women came with these stories today, but who can believe what women say? That's, what, that's really it. They couldn't even testify in court. And uh, so they, they didn't believe. And this is really a rebuke to the apostles and to the disciples. Now, these were, these were none of the 12 apostles, but they were probably well known amongst the 70 disciples. And so they talk about these things. And then they are joined by the stranger. And the stranger asks them the question, what are you talking about? You look so sad. And then Cleopas hardly answers him civilly. He really rebukes him. He says, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened last Friday? One of my sweetest, dearest, godliest old professors used to say, can you imagine asking that question? Are you the only person who doesn't know what happened at Calvary last Friday? Of that particular stranger, he asked that question, of the one who was nailed on the cross. And Jesus says, what thing? And then they began to tell him about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet. Now, uh, uh, the Messiah was to be a prophet type. Mighty in word and deed, we trusted that he would redeem Israel. And he will. But not in the way that Israel wants it redeemed, and not in the way that you and I always want our redemption. And then... He, beginning at Moses in the Old Testament, and the prophets and the Psalms, begin to show them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you really read your Bible? The letter that I read to you from this Christian that you never heard of, perhaps, this precious lady who taught school, a humble soul in a little green stucco house on 4th Avenue in Canyon, Texas. There are multiplied many like her around the world. Humble people. These are two humble people that walk along here, and yet Jesus is going to teach them from the Scriptures. And if you will take your Bible and you will open it and read it with a heart hungry for God, he will teach you from the scriptures too. He will teach you so that your heart will burn within you. When John Wesley hungered after God and went into a little prayer meeting in Aldersgate Street on May the 24th, 1738, 
he felt his heart strangely warmed. And he became a follower of Jesus. The same scriptures speak today, the same Holy Spirit is speaking to us, and we have so much more than these had at that time in many ways. So he speaks. And he speaks to us that we may know the power of this living, risen Christ. That we may know that he is working. That he has created life. And that life is not a curse. But that life is a gift from God. This is important for us to remember. Often I have to talk to people about terrible things that have to do with life and death, as any Christian today has to deal with terrible ethical decisions. One reason that I oppose abortion on demand is that abortion strikes at those who are weak. A little infant the size of the baby inside Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, can legally be injected with a saline solution and have its skin burned off and ingest and be killed inside its mother's womb. I don't believe a biblical ethic will support that. That's against life. It strikes at life when it's weakest. And so often it strikes not because the life of the mother is in danger, but just to satisfy the lust that someone has committed, or just to satisfy the inconvenience that might be entailed by some of us who have to take care of people who are in need. I am opposed to suicide for the same way. Suicide says that life is not good, that life is a curse. And so I will destroy it. But the resurrection speaks against these things. I told you on Thursday night at the Monday Thursday communion that I think that Pope John Paul did a tremendous thing when he came to the United States and spoke out here about life. He did a tremendous thing when he went to Poland in the faith of the atheist communists and went to the railroad tracks that hauled all those Jewish people to their death at Auschwitz and set up a communion table and celebrated the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, who is the victor over sin and death and hell. He sets up his communion table over the railroad track to death and tells us that life is good and that life is meant to be lived for his glory. And he wants us to understand that. John Updike is a man who wrote some things that I don't recommend. But one thing that John Updike did write in 1961 was after he had been reading Karl Barth's dogmatics and became to believe in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus was a poem in which he seeks to strike through what he must have been hearing all of his life, sermons about the flowers that bloom in the spring and meaning that this is the meaning of Easter. And he wrote these words, make no mistake about it, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse and the molecules re-knit and the animal acids rekindle, the church will fall. 
It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. You see, he is identified with us and our flesh and our death. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, decayed, then regathered out of his father's might new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with, mo- with metaphor analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign pointed in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, non papier mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Now what this is saying is that what Jesus has dealt with and what Bart is saying and what the Bible is saying is that death is real. In the creed when we say he was crucified, dead, and buried. And in the second century when they added he descended into hell, that makes it final that he took all that death could bring, but then he rose up from the dead in great power and glory as victor over all of this. And that means that there is victory for us in the face of heartache and difficult decisions and death and hardship that exists in our world today, that he is alive and he is real. This is what caused those earliest Christians to flame out in every direction. Not sentiment, but objective reality. Something that they could see. He ate fish in their presence. He ate a piece of broiled honeycomb in their presence. He wanted them to say that he was as alive and real as he had ever been. More so. And they were to understand that. And he wants us to know that too, that he is alive and real today. Samuel Moffat is a great Presbyterian uh, missionary out in Korea. He was at the World Congress on Evangelism out in Lausanne when I was there, and Sam, Sam Moffat said that he had a friend who was a UN negotiator who was a Christian, whose work took him to the capital of North Korea, one of the most obscurantist and difficult communist regimes in the whole planet Earth. And he said they were walking along a street one day, and someone stepped out of a dark alley and bumped into him and saw that he was from the West and recognized that he was probably American and started to whistle the tune, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The communist who was walking by and didn't know what on earth the tune was. He never heard the song. And Sam Moffat said the UN negotiator replied by whistling back the tune. And they walked along. The atheist was out of it all. He couldn't understand what was going on. But the two Christians were communicating with each other. What a friend we have in Jesus. That he was alive and well there in the capital of North Korean obscurantist, terrible atheist. Sol Panitsin, a few years ago, when he 
first began, he had won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And uh, I don't know if you remember what happened. One of the things that happened was that he had gone to the funeral of a friend. And at this friend's funeral, there were Western journalists who were keeping their eye on him, of course, because they knew who he was, the great Nobel Prize winner, and they wanted to see him and to catch any words that might fall from his lips. And watching him at the funeral, they saw that he made the sign of the cross. And so right away, they began to conclude that he had become a Christian. And they were right. He had become a Christian, but this was the first time that it had come out. He had made the sign of the cross. And of course, later, when he came away from the Soviet Union, he attracted all of the press in the United States, began to write about him every day, and then they took him where all the Brahman intellectuals go to Harvard to give that great commencement of speech, which shocked the daylights out of him, because, because he talked very frankly about Christian values and about ethics in a way that they didn't want to tie to Christian truth. And then I began to read the idiot editorials that came out that Solzhenitsyn ought to stick to literature. It was all right as long as he was in Russia denouncing the communists uh, for their materialism, but when he came to the West and denounced us for our spiritual exhaustion, then he ought to stick to literature. That's a little bit unfair. Uh, but Solzhenitsyn is a Christian, and he had been saved from suicide because a man in a concentration camp had made the sign of a cross on the floor. Uh, on the, uh, in the snow. And Solzhenitsyn, who became a Christian, wrote these words at Easter. It's a poem that expresses in that Russian power and simplicity something that we ought to take home with us today. O oh Lord, it's easy to dwell with you. Now, do you really think that? That it's easy to dwell with you? Take the other option, atheism, for a while. You see a lot of sick people, you see a lot of hardship, you see a lot of terrible things that happen on the planet Earth. But when you've really been through what he went through, and you've come to believe in him, you can say it. Oh Lord, it's easy to dwell with you. How easy it is to believe in you when spirit clouds over and I crushed and made dumb. That's the way those two were on the way to Emmaus. Their spirit were, spirits were clouded over. They were crushed and made dumb. When even the smartest people know not what tomorrow will bring, all of our EMX missiles spread it around, you bestowed the clear assuredness of being, vigilantly keeping the channels of goodness unclogged, surpassing thus the summits of earthly glory. I behold the way which alone I could never have found. I behold the way which alone I never could have found. That means a stranger is walking by you today to lead you in a way that you could never have found. Oh, wondrous way, he concludes, the opposite of despair. Their hearts were filled with joy. 
when he reached forward and broke the bread, we usually think that they must have seen the nail prints in his hand. And then they jumped up and they ran those seven miles back into Jerusalem to where they knew the others would be. And they found them all excited too because Jesus is alive. And when we believe that, the gates of hell tremble. When we believe that, we can face the task that we have to face to do our daily work. We can face the hardships that come to us. And we can know that he will never, never, never leave us alone. That he will be with us always, even to the end of the world. And that Jesus shall truly reign. If you have never accepted him as your Savior, Easter Day would certainly be the day to do it. And I hope that you will ask him into your heart if you have not. And now let us receive the benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore.